0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear David Arroyo. I hate confrontation. Like one time I was in the subway and this drunk guy sat on me for about three minutes.
1: <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just want to give a little shout out to our latest Patreon members, Richard Whiting and Sarah We always give a shout out when someone gives us $25 a month or more. We are so, so thankful to uh, Richard and Sarah and all of our Patreon members. Don't forget that you can become a Patreon member for as little as a dollar a month if you like. And there's so much incredible content to be found there. There are now over 50 bonus stories that you've never heard on the free podcast that are there and the latest Patreon check-in that I recorded was an extensive interview with risk story coach Cindy Freeman and we really got into a lot of profound stuff in that conversation. So go over to p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash risk and become a member and help us keep this running. Now here's the show. kids, This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. Oh, shit. Who is this behind me now? Uh... Oh, fuck. God damn it. Where did I put it? It's Capiz, Capiozo, Capiozo and Mecco. Jesus Christ. And we're calling this week's episode Bounce Back. Can I bounce back after that miserable intro? I kind of feel like I'm bouncing back a bit after a pretty rough July. And I have to say, it was a lot of the stories we've been working on that were inspiration to me, that kind of like reminded me to keep on keeping on. I mean, you know, without getting all negative about things. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story by Diana Dinnerman that she shared at a Los Angeles show of ours a while back. She can be found on Twitter at D. Dinnerman. But before that, we're going to hear a story that was recorded in New York at our show at Caveat. This is David Arroyo. He has a YouTube channel called Arroyo 2099. And here is David now. The story we call Undercover Puerto Rican.
0: Hey, guys, uh, so <clears throat> it's around June, as well as really hot, steamy. New York summer days. I'm in the subway, it's like 110 degrees. I'm sweating like crazy. There's sweat in my eyes. My eyes sting. And I have these two gigantic bags full of crap from the thrift store. Basically, crap to make my crappy apartment look less crappy. So the train comes in, doors open up, and like every New Yorker, you rush in to grab a seat, right? So I rush in to grab a seat, and there's no seats, but I look and I see this girl. She's wearing a Puerto Rican t-shirt And a Puerto Rican bandana She has two bags Taking up two seats on the bench Which I fucking hate But you know I'm standing there And what you gotta know about me guys Is that I hate confrontation Like one time I was on the subway And this drunk guy sat on me For about three minutes (laughs) Before I got up And left the train So normally I would just stand there And I would just let the seats go. But at the time, I was living in the Bronx. And uh, I'm going, man, this is not fair. I got like 15 stops to go. Then I got to take a bus to get to my apartment. No, man, this fucking sucks. I, of all people, deserve these seats. So I point to the seats. And the girl is annoyed. And she takes her bags off the seats. And I sit down. And when I sit down, my leg kind of brushes her a little bit. And she looks at me. She goes, damn. Can't say excuse me Nothing. And I look at her and I just blurt out. No, I can't. She gets so angry, and I get so scared. And um <laughs> immediately she takes out her phone, and calls her friend, and starts talking shit about me. And she's talking about how she wants her to get her friends to meet me on my stop, to kick my ass, and how she's gonna mess me up. And then she starts talking bad about me in Spanish. <sighs> The funny thing is that I speak Spanish. (laughs) So I know everything she's saying about me. Then she goes and says, this white boy thinks he's better than me. And I find that kind of really hysterical because both my parents are Puerto Rican. Um, I was born in the Bronx, but my parents moved me down when I was three. And they made a big point of speaking English around the house because they wanted me to keep my English. They wanted me to... Because they felt like it was going to be a big advantage for me when I grew up. What they didn't really understand was that it was a double-edged sword. Yeah, it did help me eventually in the future, but it also made me very isolated. Kids my own age thought I was weird. You know, they couldn't really understand why I read, you know, not for homework. I pretty much buried my face in comic books, Marvel Comics, fuck DC. And, uh... <laughs> And Christopher Pike books and Fair Street from Arl Stein, and you know, it's just like a lot of like, you know, adult stuff. And I was glued to TV. Like, my favorite shows growing up were Reading Rainbow and uh, Doogie Hauser. I kind of like patterned my speech about that. Like, vocabulary got better and better and better. And I made friends, and it was fine in high school. But then, after high school, I was in a really bad situation. And the reason is because. And Puerto Rico's been part of the US for like over 100 years. Before that, they were a the colony of Spain. So when kind of when they came over, this kind of created a, a big identity crisis where it became a national question of what makes a Puerto Rican? Is it the color of your skin? Is it that he was born in Puerto Rico? Or is it that he speaks Spanish only? And I did not meet the criteria for any of those. So I was fucked. So I would have like these experiences like the one that stands out the most to me was the that one that's in a chat room, you know, back when the internet was new. And um, I'm, like, chatting away, and I'm talking to this girl, and she's really cute. And I find out she's from Guaynabo, which is, like, a town, like, 20 minutes away from me. And uh, I go, hey, I-, I see you from Guaynabo. I'm from Bayamon. And she goes, wait, 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 what? And I'm like, yeah, I'm from Bayamon. And she goes, but you said your name is Brian. And I go, no, I said I like Brian Adams. (laughs) And she goes, well, how long have you been in in Bayamon? And I'm like, since I was three. And she goes and says, so why are we we speaking English right now? Why are we speaking Spanish? And I'm like, well, you know, I like to speak English. It's my preferred language. My mind kind of works that way. Yada, yada, yada. And she goes and says, "Um, well, I don't want to talk to you anymore. And I go, Why? And she goes, because I only talk to real Puerto Ricans. So now I'm halfway to my stop, and this girl is saying stuff in English like, Does Pedro still have his bat? Does Jose still have his gun? I know they have priors, but I think we can get away with this. And then in Spanish, she's saying to her, She's trying to figure out my stop because she's in Gun Hill Road. That's all the way to the end of the five train. She's saying stuff like, I think he gets off on of 96th Street, because all white people get off on of 96th Street. No <laughs> white person goes past 96th Street. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, this is ridiculous. So the thing is like when I moved to New York, my world was opened up. I start to meet people from, from different races, ethnicities, and stuff like that. And a really weird thing started to happen to me. That was that I was being confused. For being of other races and ethnicities, like I got confused for being Jewish, Italian, one time Pakistani, but most I get confused for being white. Situations would happen where I would be with coworkers or you know people I just met acquaintances, and the topic of where you from comes up, and I'll say, "Well, I'm from Puerto Rico. I was raised there," and they go, "Wait a minute, you're Puerto Rican?" and I go, "Yeah," and they go, "But you're speaking so well," or. You don't sound like a Puerto Rican. And my reply was always, You don't sound like a racist, but hey, I guess the world is full of surprises, isn't it? But eventually, I had these conversations over and over and over again that I got fed up, and I would just avoid the question. You know, I let people believe what they want to believe. And that's when I became an undercover Puerto Rican. And I would have like these really weird experiences You know like I was at this story slam called The Moth, Where folks They rate your story And so I'm sitting next to this like little old lady And she has like The little perm and the sweater And the little purse and stuff like that And she looks like your grandma I'm going to call her Blanche Because both Kevin and me love the Golden Girls And uh she goes and says, hey, I put my name my in the hat. I'm doing stand-up right now, and I, I can't wait to get on stage. And I go, hey, that's nice. That's great. And she gets called up, and she tells a story, and it's fucking horrible. <laughs> she has no structure whatsoever. She's going all over the place. It's kind of a boring story. But, you know, whatever. She gets bad scores, and she comes down and sits next to me. And then a uh, Colombian man gets called up, and he goes on stage, and he tells the most amazing story. It was amazing. And he got these amazing scores and eventually later on won them them off. And uh, when he gets his scores, she leans over to me and says, hey, I guess you gotta be a spick to get good scores around here. And I was floored. I was like, Blanche, you racist bitch. (laughs) Living up to the Southern stereotype. (laughs) I thought that, you know, but... I still think about this to this day. I didn't say anything. I just froze. And at the end of the night, she gets up and shakes my hand and says, it was really nice talking to you. And I even smiled a little bit, you know? I hated myself for that. I could have stood up for my people. I could have stood up for where I came from. I could have said, fuck you. But I didn't. I didn't say anything. I just stood there and smiled. So now I'm coming to my stop. I'm pretty much sure this girl's full of shit because the logistics... Just don't work.
2: <laughs>
0: like, how's she gonna get her friends to my stop in time to kick my ass? And, what well, she's gonna hold me there. it's That's not, not gonna work, you know? She's talking to her friend Spanish, talking about how scared I must be and blah, blah, and I'm like, whatever. I get to my stop, and it's hour 10. I get up in hour 10, and I get up from the seat, and she starts screaming on her phone He's getting up for hour 10! He's getting up for hour 10. And I look at her and I think about Blanche and I just go, Yo soy Bonico! And she doesn't really know how to respond to that. And I don't really know how to follow that up. So I just like walk off the stage, walk off the, the subway station, my stage, you know, like I walk off the subway station, you know? I'm waiting for the bus, and I'm thinking about what just happened. I'm going like, holy shit, I can't believe this just fucking happened. And I think to myself, you know what, man? I'm like this racial nomad. Like, I wear all these faces. But like my true face, the face that I wear, people say, well, you shouldn't wear that face because you don't live up to the stereotype, or you don't live up to our standards. I'm thinking about that, and I just go, you know what? Fuck it. Yo soy (laughs) boricua. This white boy thinks he's better than me. I speak Spanish. Both my parents are Puerto Rican. I was born in the Bronx. I'm from Bayamon. I'm from Puerto Rico. I was raised there. Wait a minute, you're Puerto Rican? I got confused for being Jewish, Italian, one time Pakistani. But most of get confused for being white. You don't sound like a Puerto Rican. Fuck it. Yo soy Boricua. Yo soy Boricua. Yo soy Boricua. Yo soy Boricua. Yo soy Boricua!
3: Okay, so when I moved to Los Angeles, I was in a huge life transition. I was changing my career. I was leaving academia to go write for entertainment. And as an academic, I was a cultural historian. And my specialization in American history was the intersection of nationalism, liberal politics, and the construction of sexual and gender identity in post-war dance theater. It's a burgeoning field. (laughs) (laughs) In addition to that isolating field of study, I'd also gotten out of a long-term relationship, and I was dating around, and I didn't know that many people. And finally, I met somebody. I met somebody who had that perfect combination of being intriguing and annoying. (laughs) I was hooked. I love that. So we went out a couple times, but it never really launched But at the time, he was also the only person I knew who produced television. So we kind of kept in touch on and off. And a couple years after we met, I asked if we could get together and talk about how I might transition into TV writing. And he said yes. So uh, we do that. We get together, and there's still a really big attraction for me. And we, we start talking about how I can make this career transition. And we develop a working relationship and a personal one. And he helps me out a lot. And he doesn't ask for anything in return. And he's a great resource to me. And I'm just new in the city, so I don't have that many friends. And he sees a part of me, and that feels really good. He likes that I'm smart. He's impressed by me. And it's really nice to feel received in this city that can make you feel so anonymous a lot of the time. So I start sending in my writing, and we're talking about our projects. And then we always make out after the meetings. <laughs> Yeah, we're like teenagers, it's all kissing and heavy petting, and one day, he says to me, I want to take you to the mall and buy you a pair of jeans. (laughs) And I think, well, that's weird, but okay. (laughs) So I go try on a bunch of jeans, and then we make out in the dressing room of the Bloomingdales in the Beverly Center. (laughs) And then we talk about the pilot I just wrote. This city is so romantic. (laughs) So one week, I get really sick. And he's very kind. He comes to my house, and he brings a bag of groceries. And he he brought me bread, milk, fruit, like probiotic yogurt. He makes me tea. He massages my feet. And he knows how to care for someone. And that's really attractive, because I'm new here. And there is no one who really takes care of me. And it feels like a relationship, but it doesn't have a name. And we're not sleeping together. But I'm thinking about him constantly. Uh, He comes back to my place a couple weeks later to congratulate me on winning this writing competition. And he brings me champagne and uh, oil and vinegar and loose teas. And then he brings me a t-shirt to sleep in, because he knows that I like to sleep in t-shirts. And these gifts are domestic, and they're intimate. And we sit on the couch, and he holds my hand, and he kisses me like he really wants me. There's intent behind the kiss, and he's looking at me like I'm a decision. And I'm on the campaign trail, okay? I am the best version of myself. I'm composed, I'm groomed, I'm polished, I'm available. Pick me. I want the job. I want to be the girlfriend. I want to be the TV executive's post-divorce girlfriend. And another week passes, and I have to sing in this choir concert, and I'm still trying to get over this cold, and so I ask him, do you have a humidifier? And he does, and he comes to my office an hour later, and he brings me his humidifier. And I think, this guy is into me. He must want me. Who showers a person with gifts and brings a humidifier to their office? This is proof! But he's not making any plans with me, and he's not asking for more of my time. So I decide that this is a slow roll, and I need to carry on with my life and whatever it is that I need to do for myself until he comes around. I'll just chip away at him until I win. (laughs) So I try to go out with other people because I know that Someone who is skittish is very suspect of people who are into them too much. And I know this because I am one of those people. So um, the following week, I try to have dinner with somebody else, some man I couldn't possibly fuck. And uh, he's an autistic lawyer, and we go to dinner at Matzah, and he brings one of those legal pads with him. Very embarrassing. (laughs) But before I go over there, I'm on the way to this other man's house. It's close enough. I think I'll put the humidifier in my trunk, and I'll just drop it off at his house because I'm done with it and that's fine. And so I do that. I drive to this guy's house after my dinner with this other embarrassing man, and I didn't really even know if he'd be home, but I I showed up, and right as I pull up to the apartment, I see him driving, and I think, oh, perfect, great, good. I didn't even know if he'd be home. I'll watch him park, and then I watch him walk into the building, and I think, well, I could intercept him and give him the humidifier, but if I do that, then he won't invite me in, and I want in there. So... I wait for him to go in his apartment, and I pull the humidifier out of the trunk. I walk into the building. I start climbing the stairs, and I hear uh, voices behind the door, and then I hear a woman's voice, and she says, I bought that milk you like from Trader Joe's, and I just freeze. The blood drains out of my body. I feel a pulse in my neck. I hear this tap, 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 tap sound, and I don't know where it's coming from, and I realize that my high heels are tapping against the marble in the apartment building, and my legs are shaking so hard, I can't even feel my body. He's with somebody. That's what all the caginess is about. He's been with someone long enough for them to know what he likes from the grocery store. And I'm frozen and I just stand in the hallway, I stand there for 10 minutes behind the door listening to their conversation. I can't move. And I'm still clutching this humidifier in my arms like it's some kind of stillborn baby. It's the only thing I have left. You know, this cheap plastic Rite Aid humidifier that was supposed to make it easier to breathe and now I can't breathe at all. And I don't know who they are to each other but I can hear time between them. They sound relaxed. They sound in good spirits. Time between people has a sound. And I can't take it anymore. So I don't know what's behind the door, but I want to know. And so I decide that I'm going to knock on the door and I'm going to confront this. And I knock really softly, but nobody comes to the door. And I'm standing there long enough, and I just think, you have to leave. You should just go. It's raining outside. I don't have an umbrella. I don't have a jacket. And I just think, well, it's time. It's done. So I put the humidifier on the welcome mat, and I turn to leave. And I get down a couple of the stairs when the door opens. And I turn up, and I look. And there's a short woman in her sweatpants, looking very nice and unsuspecting. And then I see him standing next to her, and he can see me looking down on the stairs, and he's shocked. He's caught. And I just nod to him and say, thanks, acknowledging the humidifier. And he just chirps back, oh, you're welcome, like I'm a neighbor. She picks up the humidifier, and they go inside. And so I run out of the building, and it's hurricane-like rain, rain the way it never happens in LA, and I'm raging, but I can't even scream because if I scream, that's going to break this moment. I'm going to start to feel all the things I don't want to feel. I'm going to be the, in the aftermath of the thing instead of in the thing, and I want to delay that devastation. And I don't know what just happened, I don't know, but my life as I was trying to engineer it, as I was trying to orchestrate it is over because he is no longer the linchpin inside of this grand plan that I was making. I don't know what to do. It's pouring outside, I get into my car, I drive up next to his car, it's a Honda Element, and I stop and I put the hazards on, and I get out and I bang on the car window and I kick a tire and I can't do anything to him. He's in his apartment, he's safe and warm with the Milky Likes from Trader Joe's, and <laughs> I'm searching for something that I could hit or break and I have nothing. And then I see the back windshield wiper on his car and I grab it and rip it off. With my bare hands and part of it flings into the grass and then the other part I put in my purse and I carry it around for a couple days. (laughs) I'm like a serial killer with a trophy. I've never vandalized anything in my life but it's the only thing I can do and I just leave the broken wiper on the passenger seat and I just drive home crying. And you know, before I went to his apartment that night, I heard a voice in my head that said, if you go looking for something... You will find it. And I did, because the impulse to look is the knowledge in your body that already knows. The body always knows. So I cry that night so much, my eyes are swollen. And then I send him an email the next morning, and I say, please tell me that wasn't what it looked like, because you looked at me like you didn't even know me. And I hear nothing back to this day. And it's the week before Christmas, and I know he's going out of town for the holiday, and so I drive by his house a couple of times while he's gone. I can't help it. It's like that car is like a magnet pulling me toward it. It's a trauma site, it's a crime scene. And I go back to see, and the windshield wiper is left broken, and I wonder if he knows it was me. Nobody in this city sees what's happening to me. I feel totally invisible. And I leave something nasty on his car. I find this coffee cup lid on the street. And I write on top of it, prick plus sinner equals you. (laughs) What does that mean? I don't know. And there's a rational voice inside of my head that's like, what are you doing? Don't come here anymore. Move on. Have a better life. Be grateful this happened now and not later. But everything hurts. I'm disintegrating. And I feel so, so alone. So I call a friend of mine. I am crying so hard I can barely speak. And he tells me that there is a Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous meeting that night, and we should go. And he comes to my apartment, and he brings me a pamphlet about Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. And I read the pamphlet. And I'm like, well, this doesn't really sound like me but I may not have their problem, but I have a problem, so let's just go to the meeting. So we go to Atwater Village, and we sit in this brown room that smells like stale cigarettes, and we read through the protocol for a 12-step meeting, which is full of shared agreements, and I've never been to one before, so this is new to me. After we've identified the kind of meeting we're in and its purpose and our commitment and that we are powerless, somebody stands up and says, I'm an alcoholic, I'm in the wrong meeting. How is this possible we've identified that we are in a sex and love addicts anonymous meeting for the past 15 minutes by repeating the name over and over again we just agreed to so many things together I feel like we bought a plot of land but I share at the meeting and I tell these people that I have to stop getting into relationships with unavailable people because it's the unavailable part in me that chooses them and they nod because they understand And I pull the windshield wiper out of my purse and I throw it on the table (laughs) and I tell them what I did. And they laugh and I laugh and I feel ridiculous carrying this thing around but I don't want to throw it away. (laughs) You know, I feel shame because this jerk doesn't want me. I feel betrayed because he got away with something. And I feel abandoned because I needed care. And for a short time, he provided some. And I thought that that meant something, and it did. But it might not have meant to him what it meant to me. And I have no recourse. There's nothing I can do to make him share some of this pain. This pain is mine, because the infatuation is mine. And I crave intensity, but it hurts so much I want to disappear. And that's not fair. Why do I want to disappear? And he gets to just keep living. And I thought that what I was experiencing was the same thing as what he was experiencing. But he was having his own experience, and I'll never know what that was. What happened was not my fault, but I participated in the conditions under which it happened. I thought I could strategize around him. I allowed his comfort level to determine what we did and didn't do, what we did and didn't say to each other. I didn't speak up. And that's the lesson. Speak up. Don't disappear yourself inside a relationship with another person. Non-relationship relationships are not good for anyone. They're secrets. And you cannot be a whole person when you are in a secret. And I did something else too, which is very embarrassing, but I'm going to tell you about it. One night around 2 a.m., I can't sleep, so I go into my kitchen and I pull out a knife. A knife. I drive across town to his house, and I circle the blocks until I find the car. He strategically parked the car farther away from the apartment because of the coffee cup lid I left on the windshield. But I found that thing. And I parked my car a couple spaces up, and I walked over to this stupid, ugly Honda Element. And I drive that knife into the tires until I hear the pop and seep. And I did it to both tires on the passenger side facing the curb so he wouldn't know he had flats until he tried to pull out of the spot. (laughs) And then I went home in my bed and I just stared at the ceiling until I fell asleep. You know, I was trying to be a TV executive's girlfriend, but now I can't because I am a vandal. I'm a small crimes criminal. And for the past three years, I have seen Honda Elements all over Los Angeles <laughs> and I look for that broken windshield wiper. I want to see it. I want to know if he kept that mark I left because I kept all those marks he left on me, and I left my career in academia because I wanted to have greater impact with my writing. I wanted to reach more people, and i haven 't sold a television show yet, but the amount of traffic in Los Angeles is as large as a television audience, so If you're ever sitting in traffic behind a blue Honda Element with a broken windshield wiper, you've seen my work. Thank you.
2: Trying to just get back When you get broken down again It ain't because you didn't try I tried to count the days That I've been disappointed So many old times It gives you joining But it's hard Trying to make a living away you get down again you just keep giving me. every time i get up Something come and bring the down i get so low all so time. feel our love all be gone yeah
1: this is risk This is the Teskey Brothers behind me now, and we just heard from Diana Dinnerman. Before that, a little interstitial by Robert Fulham. And a little bit later, a similar take on that theme. An interstitial uh, by Tim Sutton is coming up. And uh, before that, David Arroyo. Now then, you probably do not have (laughs) very much time to go to the post office, to wait in line, to deal with the traffic, to make the whole trip and everything. Stance.com eliminates all of that. It brings the amazing services of the U.S. post office right to your computer. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. You get 5 cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. No wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use stamps.com. We've used stamps.com at risk and the story studio for... I don't know how many years now, maybe eight years now. And right now, our listeners can get a special offer that includes a four week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in risk. That's stamps.com, enter risk. Our final story on this week's episode was shared by Mike Coteo at a recent Risk Live show here in New York City. Here is Mike now. You can find him at mikecoteo.com and he calls his story What Happened on My Way to the Holocaust Museum.
4: I felt like I was playing peekaboo behind the curtain, like trying to come out. Should I? Should I? I heard him call my name, but he wasn't quite done. Ah. Oh. How are you guys doing? It's awesome to be here. Um, As you can tell, I'm disabled. Uh, I walk kind of funny, and my hand looks like I should be a waiter. Um, (laughs) But my legs don't. Uh, So I've had several operations on my arm. And uh, this is all I could do. I was born left-handed. Seriously, people, all I want to do is jerk off with the high end that God intended me to. Um, Thank you, ma'am. She gets it. So... This is what I do normally. I get up here and I tell jokes, but I'm going to try something different. I'm going to tell you all about a little story that happened to me when I went to the Holocaust Museum. It was 1995, so there were no cell phones. People communicated by Morse code. Uh, (laughs) And I was in college, and I had this professor who taught a class called Literature of the Holocaust. And I'm not Jewish. At the end of the class... I don't know why I needed to state that. Uh, (laughs) It's relevant. At the end of the class, he said, I'm taking a group of people to the Holocaust Museum, and I'm opening it up to the class. I'm the only college student that went. So there we are on a bus, me and a bunch of 80-year-olds... Um, and I was really the only Gentile bisexual on that bus, although Mildred Morgenstern did look kind of freaky. She was giving the knowing wink to Zelda, you know what I
2: mean?
4: So... uh, I was, uh, like, uh, the reason I went on this trip is I was obsessed with the Holocaust. Like, I loved learning about it. I loved hearing about it. I wanted to, like, there were so many people who uh, did so many terrible things to other people and those people whether or not they died were survivors and i wanted to see what that was like so on that bus ride down that six hour bus ride from purchase new york to washington dc i learned a lot about the holocaust i learned a lot about these people who had family members that were there some were there themselves and I soaked it up. And then when we got to D.C., we stayed in a really swanky hotel. <laughs> oh, my God. It was amazing. I'm from a working-class family and uh, Irish Catholic, so you know there are a lot of kids. Um, <laughs> not to say stereotypes, but come on. So um, we did it. When we traveled, we would stay in, like, the Motel 666. Um, LAUGHTER It's really evil, people. Uh, So we would stay in multi... uh, Like uh, So being in this fancy hotel was amazing. I couldn't believe how lucky I got. There was a king-size bed. I started jumping on that bed like I was a five-year-old. And then the bed started talking to me. It was like, come on, sit on my face. You know you want to. So I did. Um... (laughs) And then, after the fun of all that, I decided, you know what? It's a beautiful fall night. Let me go for a walk. So I went for a walk. And um, just by chance, I happened to stumble into the gay part of town. <laughs> 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 Thank you, sir. (laughs) So, by chance, (laughs) oh, God. So I stumbled into the gay part of town. And I walked into this bar that didn't card me, and I couldn't believe it, because I was 19 at the time, and I looked like I was 14, like I still had buck teeth, people. Um, so I went there, and this place was popping, people, like my peas. Um <laughs> It was amazing. They were jam-packed in there. You couldn't squeeze through. Wherever you went, it was dicks on ass, ass on dicks. It was fun times. So I grabbed a drink, and I was just dancing around, you know, woo-woo. And um, and I went up to the bathroom um, to relieve myself, and I... Uh, As I was walking in, this guy was walking out. And he really wasn't much to look at. Like, I think he had a pot belly. He was a little balding. But he paid attention to me. And as a disabled kid who really didn't find himself that attractive and think he wasn't worth anything, that meant a lot. He said, hi. I said, hi. Hi. And he was like, you want to get out of here? And I'm like, okay. And really, that was the exact conversation. Verbatim. <laughs> no, not really. So uh, we got out of there, and we went back to his place. And um, when we went back to his place, we go into his bedroom, and we're, we're doing things. And he starts to try to talk me into having anal sex. And I'm, I'm no prude, trust me. Um, but I've never had anal sex before, and it was, I, like, I thought to myself, well, YOLO, but (laughs) YOLO didn't exist back then, so I got the copyright, um, I, I was like, you know, let's try it, it's an experience, so we get naked, and we get in bed, and, um, he was like, why don't you get on top? And I thought, okay, that's safer, right? Because I'm not in a vulnerable position, blah, blah, blah. And I get on top, and he puts a condom on, and he shoves himself inside me, and I yell, stop, stop! And that just makes him go that much harder and that much faster. And um, he really, he, he wouldn't stop until he came. And then after he came, he pushed me off him. And after he pushed me off him, he was done with me. He laid back in the bed. Um, this was before cell phones, so I had no idea where the hell I was. Um, and I said to him, I have no idea where I am. Can you help me get back to my hotel? He's a- And... Like, most of the night is a blur. Like, I don't want to remember that time, but this is what I remember. He looked at me, and he waved me off. He goes, no, I'm not helping you. Someone else can help you outside. And so I'm getting dressed awkwardly, and I'm going outside, and I find this guy who is nice enough to tell me where my hotel was, And I get back to the hotel, and I'm devastated. Like, this hotel that I loved just three hours ago was now like a prison cell. I had nowhere to go. I had just had one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. And I did not know what was going on. So, I thought, let me take a bath, because that'll make everything feel better. So, I get in the bathtub I run it and it's boiling hot just the way I like it and I step in the bathtub and I go oh oh ah. like it feels really good and it must have started to loosen me up because all of a sudden I lost control and outspat feces and blood and just there I am sitting in a tub full of feces and blood and crying to myself. I I don't know how I got here, so I had to, you know, run the shower now, and I get out of the tub, and it's now about 2 a.m., and I have to be up in four hours to get ready to go to the Holocaust Museum. I go to bed, and I'm lying in bed, and for like 10, 20, 30 minutes, I can't really think. I can't fall asleep. I'm just lying there. How did such a nice night turn into this? And I go to sleep, and I wake up the next day, and I go to the Holocaust Museum, and I put everything out of my mind. And I'm walking around the Holocaust Museum, and I'm looking at these people who have really lost their lives, and died a tragic death, and they were discarded. And at that moment, I felt discarded. I really felt like I had something in common, and I could relate, and I felt like I could heal through watching those stories. And... The funny thing about all this is it affected me in so many different ways you could never believe. Like, I... It affected the way I had sex with people. Like, I think I didn't bottom again for, like, five years. But when I would have sex with people, I was super concerned about them. Like, even if it was a stranger, I just met. Or was standing up with. Like, I was super... Is this okay? Are you okay? Like, And it really made me feel like I was not going to treat anyone like I was treated. You know, there were a lot of lessons I learned back then. And the one lesson I learned was, like, I am not a victim. Like, I could not say ever that I was raped. I do... What most funny people do When something tragic happens to them I turn it into a hell of a story I started telling people About the time I started shitting in the bathtub After a fun night out And like it wasn't until I was in a relationship in my 30s Where where I felt safe enough That I was able to finally admit that I was raped Um, and that's what it was and up until then I could never say that out loud Um, even now I couldn't believe I submitted this story to risk (laughs) this story of all stories I got so many other shitty stories Um, but like I said we can really heal ...through telling our stories. Um, right now... I'm a stand-up comic... ...and I also work as... I'm a social worker... ...and I also work as a psychotherapist. I have a private practice. And I work a lot... ...with... ...sexual abuse survivors. And do you know... there's ...like I was looking for it... ...there are really no statistics... ...for men who've been raped. Because... No man wants to admit that. No man wants to be the victim. Well, I told this story from a place of strength, and thank you for letting me tell it. Run, run, don't dare be quiet. Keep
2: moving the beast won't stop till we're dead. All oh. the oh. Grapes on our knees will tell you where we've been, where we've oh, we have played. How we play in autumn days.
1: Is all for this week's episode folks this is the paper kites behind me now and we just heard from Mike Coteo Don't forget that we teach storytelling at our school, thestorystudio.org. One-on-one training, in-person workshops, training that you can do by watching our video courses online. We also do corporate training. We've worked with clients like Google and Pfizer and Citibank, you know, helping businesses communicate in a more human, in a more emotional, in a more compelling way that is all at the storystudio.org also you can always find information about where risk is appearing live next at risk-show.com/tour folks today's the day take a risk
0: Sweat in my eyes?
2: Confrontation.
0: confrontation. Confrontation. This white boy. This white boy. Damn. Can't say excuse me nothing. Train comes in, confrontation. Doors open up, and like every New Yorker. Excuse me nothing. Damn. No, I can't. And I think about Blanche. And I think and about Blanche. I think about Blanche, Blanche. And I just go. And I just go. Yo soy bolívar.